0: You ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to the Loyalist Connections. <music> Established 1783. So Beachville originally stretched from the Northwest Arm out to Five Islands Lake, which is around the Tantallon
1: area. We're gonna talk about Beachville, formerly known as Beach Hill. That's
0: right. It was settled between 1812 and 1816.
1: The settlers, initially, from what we understand, were from the War of 1812, so the Black
0: refugees. So, when we talk about the, the Black refugees that sett- settled in Nova Scotia at that time, uh, it's interesting to note that there was a variety of different settlements. We're looking at places like North Preston, Upper Hammonds Plains, Beachville, and Africville. We both have ties to these communities. Uh, I'll let you talk about your ties to the community specifically. From what I'm
1: learning from my ancestry search is, you know, I'm connected to North Preston, East Preston, Africville, some of those uh, communities that were from that wave.
0: We've had this conversation before. I talk about my mother's side of the family, her handing me those documents and saying, literally saying 1812 Chesapeake Bay settlement in the Prestons Uh at that time. So I know that I also have ties with the Upper Hammond's Plains community on my mother's side as well, too. So definitely both have ties and connections to this third wave of migration Absolutely. Uh, to Nova Scotia. So uh, we briefly introduced
1: the uh, community of Beachville, and now we have our special guest, which is uh, Dr. Barb Hamilton Hinch. In the studio with us. Yes. So new experience. New experience. Thank you so much for coming out.
2: Thank you for having me. I love being around people. It's been a long time.
1: (laughs) So we uh, briefly touched on Beachville. Uh, What we understand is you are from the community. Can you let us know a little bit about how you're connected to the community?
2: Absolutely. So in everything I do and say, I acknowledge Beachville as well as Cherrybrook because Mm -hmm. both of those two communities have raised me. So my father is from the community of Beachville, uh-huh. and my mother's from the community of Cherry Brook. Oh, interesting. So when my mother was 18, she became one of those young brides uh-huh. and moved from Cherry Brook to Beachville, and then decided to start her family there. So I've been born and raised in Beechville, uh-huh. and I had six brothers and sisters. We lost one very early. He was the firstborn, uh-huh. but he's still very much so a part of our family. And, um, and so I was born and raised in Beechville, did all of my education in Beechville, and only moved out of Beachville when I went to university. Wow. So I have a, a long death. Yeah. Yes. So, and it was very fortunate to have lots of cousins mm-hmm. that lived with us in Beachville, my grandparents. So we were a very close-knit family. Um, everything I did was in Beachville, even to this day. Although I live in Dartmouth, mm-hmm. I still travel to Beachville for church. Wow. And when my mother moved to Windsor, mm-hmm. uh, when she married her second husband, she would travel from Windsor to Beachville. So when she was doing that for, I don't know, more than seven years, I'm like, what could my excuse be not to drive across the bridge <laughs> and continue my allegiance and my family connection to my community church of Beechville?
0: And you lived in the Monroe subdivision.
2: I did live in the Monroe subdivision, but funny enough, we didn't start out in the Monroe subdivision. Um, people claim because mom had, and dad had a sixth child, it was time to move to a, a bigger house. Uh-huh. So for the longest time, we lived on my grandfather's property, um, which was near the Beachville Baptist Church. And it was a very, very small house. Uh-huh. And at that time, they were raising five children in that small house. Um, it might have had two bedrooms, um, and then there was the opportunity to for a redevelopment or new development in Beachville, called Beachville-Monroe Subdivision. Mm-hmm. Um, so they moved up there, and actually it was like a co-op, so they actually helped to build their homes. And I have pictures of my mom actually building That's our amazing. home um, in 1968. So were you guys we
1: uh, like one of the first families in the In Monroes? the
2: subdivision, we were. Wow. Yeah, we were one of the first families in the subdivision.
1: That's literally history.
2: Yeah. That's
1: amazing. And that subdivision is still here to this day? The
2: subdivision is still here to this day. We've seen a lot of new families move uh-huh. in and out of the subdivision, which I think is happening to a lot of our black communities, period. And and I think, and you may get into this later, but we were always told about our history in Beechville growing up. That's one thing I really love about my community, uh-huh. and the fact that our community didn't start where it is right now. Mm. And so, Beachville actually started by the Armdale Rotary. Okay. And there used to be a prison called Malville Malville Island. Uh And there was a prison. That prison was actually in the community of Beachville. That's how far Beachville was. It was way past the Armdale Rotary. Yeah. And so, if you ever go to Malville Island, there is actually a a sign that talks about Beachville. So, our community was huge. Uh So, when things were happening to Africville, it was also happening to Beachville, and it continues to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, we were very surprised as young people growing up or as adults growing up that they actually named Beachville states, Beachville states, because there's been such a history of white communities being uh-huh. called white names. So such as Lakeside and Timberley. Uh-huh. They are located in Beachville, uh-huh. but because there's more predominantly white communities moving into those areas, those names change to Lakeside and Timberley.
0: So it's like a, a different sense of identity uh, Absolutely. Uh, within the black community, Absolutely. right? And they're yeah. living on... What yeah, it's not in
2: know. a
1: different sense. They just changed, changed the identity. Yeah. Similar to how North <laughs>
2: Preston, if you think about North Preston, and Street, Yep. as soon as you start getting outside of black communities, they want the names changed.
0: Right. And we've had this conversation before, right? Like, wow. I, I literally said to Larisse, I went down to the Goddard Street market and it's supposed to be promoting black businesses. So I'm like, this is this doesn't make sense to me. Like this community's black. So like <clears throat> why are we promoting black businesses here? Right. We should be anyways. Yes, absolutely. But then I get down there and look, I'm like the majority of people here
2: are white. Yes. So yes.
0: you know, you're starting to see these subtle change. I guess they're not subtle. They're not right. they're they're subtle. So they're very, not like subtle. even when you
2: think of Lake Loon, right? Montague Road. I mean, we could go through our whole list of black communities in Nova Scotia and see how our names changed. Lake Major becomes North Preston after a certain distance, so it goes on and on about how our communities have been shrinking or yes. have been stolen uh-huh. um, from us, uh-huh. and and we need to really educate our young people and even ourselves to not sell our land.
1: Oh, yeah, it, it's been
2: very painful watching my own family land in Beachville getting ready to be developed into. Um, Houses uh-huh. and and as a young person, you can't do anything about it because you don't own it. So that brings up an interesting question.
1: Uh, like you mentioned that you were raised in your grandparents' house. Yeah, it was a two bedroom home.
2: Well, we were we had a smaller house on the on my oh, grandfather's on the property. property. Yeah, is that
1: property still in the family or no? No, the
2: property is not still in the family, and that's actually quite painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and people sell their land for different reasons, and I'm not privy to what happened with mm-hmm. that with that property. Mm-hmm. I just know. It hurt to watch it leave the family, and as I travel to Beachville and I look to the right on my way to church mm-hmm. and seeing that being developed, yes, is hard. It's yeah. hard. And how close it is to our church,
1: uh-huh. yeah. right?
2: So our church has been fighting a long time because we have been designated as a historical site. Yes, um, we've been around in Beachville since the 18th century. Since yes, 1816, r- yeah. r- were the original Black refugees after the war of 1812. Mm-hmm. So our history is strong. And, and we have been in that community since. And so when people talk about the founding of Canada and, and all that sort of thing, we were here before Canada was a country. And and people seem to forget that.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. That's powerful. Point. Yeah, and, yeah, and we were, right? And that's I think we powerful. have to stop and realize that. Yeah. Further to Larissa's point about, you know, the land transfer, what would be some of the benefits to selling your land at that time? Why would you give up your land? Was it? external pressure well
2: I think it'd be similar to some of the things that well in terms of Africa well, they fought and and, and and they're still fighting mm-hmm. and I think some of it comes down to need I mean you're dealing with a lot of black families um, African Nova Scotian families that don't have a lot and and land is value. And it still is value. Uh-huh. And if you don't realize the value of your land, uh-huh. then you're gonna sell your land uh-huh. if they're offering you something else, yeah. right? So, and that's often what companies and businesses do, will we'll move you but we'll give you this for your land. Uh-huh. And it's seldom the value of what the land is worth. Oh. And so you slowly saw this encroachment happening in Beachville. <laughs> we'll move you a little further back and we'll give you some money, yeah. but it was never the value. And so if you have a, a generation of populations that not, that's not growing up educated, And by no means of their own. I mean, we live in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia was a segregated, and still to a degree continues to be, a segregated province. We had segregated schools. We had segregation. It lived in Nova Scotia. It lives in Nova Scotia. Uh We had racism. We have racism. So when you have individuals who are just fighting to live, who are raising their families, who are working often in domestic work, or, or as laborers, And you're given the opportunity for a couple thousand dollars and you haven't seen that much cash in your hand Uh from one paycheck. Uh What are you going to say?
0: The choice is easy. Oh, it's easy.
2: Right. So we can't fault our our ancestors and our grandparents and great parents for what they did.
0: Well, you mentioned something. They did it out of necessity. Yeah. They did. And you mentioned something that was very powerful there. Education. Right. And so, you know, if you don't know the value of your land. Then somebody approaches you and says, hey, well, I'll give you this. Uh You said it's that's literally like a paycheck or two to them. Right. What are you going to do? Right. What are your options at that point? You're you're trying to basically get out of out of poverty. Yeah. Some of these obscure situations. I, I don't know about you, but I probably would say yes.
1: Like given the circumstances of the time. People had to live in the present. They couldn't think long term. No, absolutely. Right? It's like we don't have forethought to understand and appreciate that uh, your land right, equals generational yeah. wealth.
2: Right. And right I now. need to take care of my family.
1: I, I need One to take thing care I love family. about
2: African Nova Scotians and being a person of African descent is family is paramount. And especially parents and grandparents will do anything to protect their children and their grandchildren and yes. their generations of family. Yep. And that's why you all said generations living together. Mm-hmm. That was their way of supporting and protecting each other. And mm-hmm. that existed in our home. Our parents, our grandparents raised each other's children. We raised cousins and cousins were raised like brothers and sisters. Cousins were raised like aunts and uncles. Mm-hmm. We took care of each other. And so if that meant that I had to sell something in order for you to have something, yeah. a pair of shoes and education, then I'm going to make that sacrifice because that's all i can do for you
1: so given like the time that's like elapsed from like you know when you were a child to present do you see a change in that family dynamic like has the family changed
2: that's a really powerful and interesting question and so even for me um And it's always difficult for me to talk about my education, and I don't know why that is, right?
0: You know what? It's funny you said that because when we had to do our bios, we're writing our bios out, and I honestly feel like bios are overrated. Right. I I feel like they, they, you know, oh, submit a bio and talk about yourself. I'm like, but that that only gives you a little snippet about Uh me, and this Uh is the thing I'm always careful of in terms of education education refers to your ability to be able to complete something within a structure Uh right that doesn't define me as a person and i think this lived experience and so when you said that you struggle talking about your education i actually get that and i've struggled a long time the industries I've worked in I've always been kind of fighting against what I've done it's like my identity before was it's basketball, like a fish yeah. swimming yeah. against yeah. The, the streams right, right? so like I get it's... into this corporate world and everybody's got designations around and right. masters and I'm like well, I have a bachelor of commerce degree yeah I feel inadequate yeah I do at times and I, I don't know if that's part of well, I would say the black complexity with right. us, right? And yeah. f- fighting your identity, like right. only being half of yourself at times. So yeah. when, I'm,
2: when I'm with my family, my black brothers and sisters, like I am today, my education doesn't define me. What defines me is family and uh-huh. being with you. When I'm in the presence or amongst people that are non-black, I throw around doctor like it's... Rolls off my tongue (laughs) like anything. They need to know who I am Uh and they need to know my education. Yes. So that's the struggle that I have is when I sit here with my brothers and sisters and recognizing my credentials, but that doesn't define who I am. My community defines who I am. So when I moved outside of my community, that was challenging for me Uh because often when we get higher education and become more employable, um, we move. Uh-huh. And we don't move because we want to move necessarily we move because we want better for our family yes. or better for our children and that isn't always necessarily in our community so so getting to what we were talking about one of the one of the things that I struggle with is the fact that I moved out of my community and I raised my children in predominantly white communities not by choice yeah. but but because that's where my job was uh-huh. or that's where we wanted to live uh-huh. And so I remember as my children got older and I did everything I could to make sure they were connected to the community. So we would still go to Beechful Church, we would still go to Cherry Brook, we would still connect with family. But I remember them saying to me that they didn't fully understand what it meant to be an African Nova Scotian. Mm. And that hurt me. Uh And they didn't have the same connections I had growing up in a black community. They couldn't go next door and say we're out of sugar. They couldn't go next door and say, I'm making a cake, can I get an egg? So they didn't have that same relationship that you get from a black community. Yes. So I really miss not raising them in a space where I could say the host key is over at Aunt Joyce's. Yep. Go get the house key. Yep. Now you have to try and find a spot to hide your house key or put a code on your house and hope that <laughs> they remember <laughs> so they can get in. But you could just say, leave your key wherever, leave your door open. Yep. Right. And so you can't do that anymore. So I miss not having that. And then I can't say to my kids, you're going to go next door and babysit so-and-so because they're going downtown.
0: You know, it's the similarities to like where where I grew up. My host in Yarmouth, my grandmother's host was literally right next. Right. So she and so I'm hearing a lot of things. I'm like. I never would have thought about it in that sense. Yeah. But that was my community. Yep. And then, you know, my uncle would come from Green Villain occasionally. Um, I knew he was always there, right? But that was my community. Yeah. But you talked about leaving the community as well too. And mm-hmm. I sometimes feel pressure because then I go back home and I feel like I'm not part of the community.
2: It's yeah. strange at times, right? And I think for me that's why I maintained the Sunday connection. Yeah. Right. And Sundays right. was huge for the black community. You'd go to church and then we'd always go to our grandmother's house after church. And so my kids don't have that same experience, but they, they did have it when my mom was alive. And then from, from Beachville we'd go to Cherry Brook for supper yeah. for Sundays to be with our Cherry Brook cousins. And so we always knew who our cousins were. I mean, I have over a hundred cousins uh-huh. that would be close to my same age and I could name them all. My children can't name their cousins. No. And that breaks my heart. And and then, and then when an aunt or uncle or cousin comes by and says, "I'm your people," they're like you are <laughs> yeah. so that's a struggle for me but I do my best to keep them connected mm-hmm. um, and they understand the importance of that so I am thankful that they understand the importance of it and they are thankful for it it's just that their are growing up experience isn't as rich in that way right. of the black community as mine was
1: and I guess that like just highlights the changes from like when you were growing up to now like how the dynamics of the family have changed because Like I can remember, like growing up in in the square, right? It was Mm -hmm. I just go next door to get anything I needed. Absolutely, you know, you don't have to worry because everybody in the community is watching out for you.
0: But isn't it interesting? We've talked about three different historical Black communities: Yarmouth, Beachville, and the Square. Yes, and they all had those similarities. Like that's what we did to survive. We created these communities around us that were essentially. And I've said this before, like safe havens, you knew where to go and where you were protected. Mm -hmm. And And
2: even when you connect that to education, right? So as a community, you're going to school together. Yep. Yes. Right. So you're often going to have more than one black person in your class. Mm -hmm. So my children didn't have that experience, right? Mm -hmm. Because we lived in a predominantly white community. They went to a French immersion school. So they're lucky if they had three Mm -hmm. in their class. So they didn't have that even within school, that sense of community. And so we would walk to school together. So um, when I went to school, so so Beachville did have a segregated school system uh-huh. right up until 1964, around that time. My brother went to segregated school. Really? And so he talks in the film from Dr. Sylvia Hamilton, who's, who's a relative, the little black schoolhouse, schoolhouse yeah. and she does interview some of the folks from Beachville who attended the segregated school in Beachville. And so by the time I was ready to go to school, I actually walked to Beachville Lakeside Consolidated, and that would have been the school that replaced the segregated school. And so we would walk to school together from our community of Beachville. And the walk was probably about 20 minutes. But there wasn't a school bus, and you had to do that every day.
0: Access. And so you would yeah. walk
2: to school in the morning. You'd walk home at lunch because there wasn't a lunchtime program. You'd walk back to school. You'd run home at lunchtime. Because yeah. you'd you have be back like, get back yeah, in the you got to get back. <laughs> and then you walk back after after school. But at least you were walking with your friends. Mm-hmm. and And I think that's when we really began to experience this thing called racism within the public school system because now we're being treated differently. And then we changed from Beachville Lakeside Consolidate to go to Alderwood. So Beechville went from grade primary to grade three. Uh-huh. And then we went to Alderwood Elementary from grade four to grade six. We were still walking, and that was about another seven minutes from Beechville Lakeside Consolidate. There's uh-huh. no cafeteria. So that's why I smile at kids when they talk about trying to get home for, for school and getting a bus to go to school. And, and I remember when I was at Alderwood that I would actually go to one of my white students' or friend's house for lunch, but only if her parents were not home because she lived close to Alderwood, so I would be invited to go to her house for lunch, but only if her parents weren't home. Um, And then from Beachville, from Alderwood, which was in Lakeside, we then went to Timberley Junior High, so that's when we began to be bused. And even though we had to pass Lakeside and Timberley Mm -hmm. to get to Timberley Junior High, we only had a bus for Beachville. None of the white kids were on our bus going to Timberley Junior High. On the bus. We were. The bus became integrated Uh when we started going to high school, um, which was at Five Island Lake, John A. So you knew. And so if you were smart, if you missed your bus in Beachville, you could run to Lakeside to get that bus because it was a little later. Uh But we actually drove past Lakeside to go to Timberley. And so even when I got to Timberley Junior High, because I did well academically, that's when they really began to separate us. Uh, And so I became the only black child from grade seven to grade nine in my junior high, which really affected me. I'm
0: speechless. And this is what, you know, one of the questions I had was, you know, how does that affect you as Mm. being the only black person in that class?
2: Even when you say that, so a lot of my research that I do is around the impact of racism on health and well-being. My PhD looked at the impact of racism on the health and well-being of women of African descent living in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. And so I think my interest in that is because it's a lived reality, and that lived reality goes far back. And when we think about those memories, we're recalling pain, right? And people don't think about people of African descent experience historical trauma. And we have historical trauma. And we talk about that. Exactly. And we talk about that trauma. And so what was challenging for me, and it still happens to this day for some of our students, is you would get name called, right, by by all communities. Oh, you think you're white because you're smart. So we continue to associate being smart with being white, which was problematic. So Mm -hmm. here's my community that raised me. And only because I'm doing well in school, now you're thinking that I'm thinking I'm different. So should I stop doing well in school so then I can have my friends from my community? Or should I keep doing well in school and deal with that sacrifice?
1: So like uh, you're being called like, a, are you an Uncle Tom? <laughs> yes. It's well, like, a, I've been called Uncle Tom.
0: <laughs> I, can, I can just tell you this right now. that That's happened to me my whole entire Absolutely. life.
1: Absolutely. You know, right. somebody would
2: preppy.
0: Yeah. Right. What do you, What yep. do you mean? Like... Oh, pre- why are you going to class on time? Right. <laughs> right. You know, there was Why
2: you know, are you hanging out? Yeah,
0: you know, why it, like you know come to, come down here, right? You right. know, right? So like and you know, it's f- fortunate enough I had a lot of guidance you know, from my, my parents also, basketball kind of kept me on that straight path. Right. And like, I was a
2: soccer player. Yeah. And so once you get to junior high, unlike generations now, we weren't introduced to organized sports. We couldn't afford it. Yeah. There wasn't this thing called club sports growing up. We were in the country. It was called the country. We were, it was the county. So I didn't play any organized sports until early junior high. And soccer was my sport. And I played it right up to the national level. But that was my saving grace, but also my soccer team was predominantly white. And I remember my, my parents were busy and often had to work on soccer games, so I'd have to get a drive from my white teammates who were afraid to come into my subdivision, and I'd have to wait on the side of the road to get picked up to go to our games. Um, so, so when you talk about what do I remember and how do I recall that? I, I, I remember that pain. And so mm-hmm. I was very thankful for family mm-hmm. because your cousins still stay, have to be your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just have to go tell on them. Yeah. And so they can't be mad at you too long in that generation, right? So, That's right. so Tammy Hamilton was one of my best friends. Remains to it, to this day. We're the exact same age. I actually told, call her my younger sister. There's only 12 days difference. But when I would have difficulty within my community of Beachville my cousins became my my, my, my salvation. And, and that's what got me through.
1: Mm-hmm, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So now, like, just looking at all this, uh, how has, like, your lived experience mm-hmm. influenced your research and how you give back to the community?
2: Such a great question. And I don't think people realize how much we as black people are always thinking about our community. Mm-hmm. And everything we do... Mm-hmm we are the least selfish population we're always thinking about what if i do this how can i help somebody else or what impact will that be and Mm -hmm. how can i influence or how can i support and so even when i think about every degree that i that i've done it's always been how can i connect that to my community all the Mm -hmm. research i do is how can i connect that to my my community so even when i did my first degree. I wanted to be a psychologist, and I'm thankful that my my older, my young, my middle son, um, David Anthony, is now thinking about being a psychologist because I went a different path. And I remember going to university and having multiple choice exams and hating multiple choice exams because I'm a talker. And so I said, well, this isn't working for me. So how can I still connect to black people? Because I grew up that, with that whole, when you talk about that, what was the impact of that? I grew up not loving who I was as a black person until I got connected to this organization called Cultural Awareness Youth Group of Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I want to be that support for black young people to understand their identity, and to be proud of who they were as a black person. So I wanted to be able to have these conversations. So my first degree I went into was recreation management. Never thought about it as a degree. Uh I'm an athlete, who does a degree in recreation? I remember saying that. I was working at George Dixon Center, and it was a staff person who said, hey, you should do a degree in recreation. I'm like, ah, that would be perfect. Because while people are relaxing Uh and playing and having fun, I can talk to them about themselves. Uh-huh. I can talk to them about their identity. Right. I can talk to them about education. And they won't realize that they're being talked to and motivated uh-huh. because they're having fun. Yep. And so I worked for the city for a long period of time doing exactly that and, and being very happy. And, and at that time, I was always in the black communities. I was, I was at George Dixon Center. I was at Needham Center, I was at the community YMCA, Uh and I was at um, the Spryfield Community Center. And so when I left that, I also took that education and went to the Gambia, West Africa, and did the similar thing, because at that time, a lot of the women weren't engaging in physical activity. It was mainly for men. And so bought some health and wellness into that community. Uh And then I went back and did a master's, and my intent was, because then I started having a family, was to become a principal. So I have an education degree as well. Uh And the reason why I was doing that is because I didn't want to send my kids into a school system that damaged me. Right. I wanted to Uh be in a system where I could watch what teachers are doing to my my kids Uh and protect them. And if I had to, I would fire teachers the minute they started
0: (laughs) giving problems to my
2: children. So that's why I went in and did an education degree. And so as I was finishing up my education degree, I got a call to go to the university into a position that I helped create in the 80s. So in the 80s, Culture Awareness Youth Group created a bunch of little, um, what do we call ourselves? Advocates, activists. Mm-hmm. And so we advocated for the Black Student Advising Center uh-huh. um, in the 80s because we were there as en masse as black students coming from the Mount, St. Mary's, and Dal, and there wasn't advisors who looked like us. Uh-huh. And we would be like that book, Why Are All the Colored Children Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, which still happens in our high schools, uh-huh. right? So we would do that at university. We'd have a space, and you would know where to go if you want to be with other black students. So we said, you know what, enough of this. As the executive, we advocated with the president to get a space and an advisor, and we did that. And so in 2002, the position became vacant, and I had an opportunity to go back and be the black student advisor. And I share this long story because everything I'd done was to work with black people and to be connected to black people. And so as the black student advisor, even though I wasn't in the public school system, I could now help students get into university. Mm-hmm. I could now support students while they were at university. And that really made a difference. I, I loved that job because it was me coming back in a position that I helped as a baby, yep. and now it was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I could help nurture it to become an adult. Right. And then I was enjoying that and started teaching part-time. And really enjoyed teaching and said, hey, this is my chance to educate more people about people of African descent, support students going into classes, help to navigate where they should or shouldn't go, and really direct them. So in 2008, I accepted a position as an assistant professor and started teaching and then started my Ph.D full-time. Throughout all that process, I was developing courses around people of African descent, Mm -hmm. I was doing talks around racism and discrimination, so all of my courses that was present, which is very evident in my course evaluations when white students would say, oh, Dr. Hamilton Hinch made me feel uncomfortable in class.
0: When I hear somebody say they feel uncomfortable, I always stop and say,
2: how do you think I feel? Right. (laughs) Right. And all I say is, I guess I was doing my job.
1: Because it's a day-to-day thing in like yeah, our lives, right? Absolutely. Like, it's a day-to-day thing it where is. we're uber, super critical of everything, everything. that comes out of our mouth because of how we're going to be perceived because of the way we're talking. Literally, right.
0: before you came here, we reco- recorded our part and we played it back. And Larisse was like, oh, I don't like how I sound. And all I said, <laughs> that's part of the condition. Right, yeah. <laughs> it is. Right? Imagine, yeah. imagine you're able to speak freely and not oh, worry about that. I say that all the time. You know, I get into meetings. I'm like, well, should I say I mean, this is getting really awkward here. Um, (laughs) Should I say something? Oh, no. And then guess what happens? I'll go back and internalize. Why didn't I say anything?
2: Right, right. And it's
0: like, it's not a day thing. It's a day turns into weeks, Weeks. months, something that I carry on with me. And then all of a sudden that. Builds up, right? Right.
2: And that's what my research turned into, right? So I was fortunate to have uh, Senator Dr. Wanda Thomas Bernard, who was at Dow at the time, and Uh she was doing research, national research, on uh, the impact of racism as violence. And it was a national research project. So I'm like, oh, my heavens, that will be perfect for my Ph.D., so I worked with Dr. Wanda Thomas-Bernard um, doing my PhD on the impact of racism on the health and well-being of women of African descent. Mm-hmm. And I really want to look at women because I want to look at myself. Yep. I want to talk about my experience. Yep. I want to be able to connect to the women that were engaged in the research. And, and really, because a lot of women carry the weight of the family.
0: It's really true. And, you know, w- one thing Larissa and I talked about, and this is kind of to take, I, kind of a walk back in history, but... You were speaking about your mother and her mother. What was the landscape like for your mother or, and your, I guess, grandmother in that yeah. sense in terms of opportunities?
2: Well, it goes back to the strength of being raised in a black community, uh-huh. right? Because a lot of our mothers had to work outside the home. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our mothers were initially domestic workers. So my so mom what does that mean? Would tell, domestic, they would have predominantly worked in predominantly white, upper class homes. Um, mm-hmm. In this case, a lot of them worked in the south end of Halifax and they would either travel together by car or take the bus. Uh So when I was young, that was my mother's primary employment, was being a domestic worker in a predominantly white household. And as my mother was preparing to transition, she passed away in September of last year, 2020. We would have these stories, just wanting to know her Mm. stories Uh more. Um, And she would always share these stories, but it became even more important um, during her, her last months. And she would talk about how she was treated. And she wasn't mistreated in these homes, but it was what was expected of her to do uh-huh. in terms of entertaining the children and going on trips with them. And so not just being a domestic worker and caring for the home, but also caring for the children. And, and she would talk about that, and at 18, that's where she lived. She lived in their homes until she got married, and then she would go back and forth to their homes. So for the longest time, domestic workers actually lived in the homes until they got married, and then they would commute back and forth to the
1: homes you mentioned like the commute was like sometimes carpool or uh, sometimes take a bus yeah we heard something about people walking
2: they had to there was no bus in beachville okay so beachville didn't get a, a metro transit until well into the late 1980s so we used to use the bus that was going like Acadian lines yeah We'd go to Yarmouth so we yeah. had to pass Beachville. so sometimes you would pay your three dollars to get to Halifax or you would have
0: heard Acadian lines for <laughs> <minutes>.
2: <laughs> So that was the way that you got into town. Yeah. The Acadia Lines bus would stop, or you would walk to get into the city, or hitchhike. Like, I remember hitchhiking as a child to go home from Halifax because I loved hanging out in Uniac Square in Maugrey Park. I was glad that I had cousins that lived on Creighton Street because yeah. that was my way to get into the city. And yeah. <laughs> goes go to Centennial Pool. Yeah. Yeah, Saturday. fair enough. Yes. That's right. That was what mom did. And, and mm-hmm. often, people who worked in homes of, of white people didn't have um, insurance, they didn't have health plans. Uh-huh. And so they did their best with what they had. Um, thankfully, my mother eventually became a waitress or a head waitress at Keddy's. The hotel that used to be on the Armdale Road. I think it's now called a Best Western. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when my father passed away, when I was 14, mom knew she needed more. So she went back to school in her late 40s and became an insurance broker. Wow. And started selling insurance. And she had to rewrite her test a couple times to pass. But she was determined mm-hmm. to get a better job. To provide for her family, and she did. Mm-hmm. But during that time, what she experienced was painful. And I remember that she would bring home bags of clothing for us as kids that would be coming from the families that she worked in. Right. And 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 so you just said
0: families, right? But it wasn't they, one. It was no. M- there
2: wasn't. There would be more than one family that you would you'd work for.
0: So you mentioned about living in, like so if there's multiple fit how would that work exactly there'd be
2: a primary household that you would live in but then you would support perhaps the cousin or the neighbor next door if you had time
0: this kind of sounds a little bit like an extension of servitude uh, yeah, yeah. that indentured servant indentured <laughs> servant
2: type thing yeah it's interesting but they that were they were paid yeah. right they were paid I don't know how much they were ah, paid right but lower um, than but lower than yeah. and they had a place to live yeah Um. And, and we and we say this again very cynically but also acknowledging the fact that that's what they had to do right yes. yeah right because mom come from a family of 13 brothers and sisters yeah so who can care for 13 brothers and sisters you either need to go out and work someplace or you need to go to the military mm-hmm. or you need to do something because we can't take care of thirteen children in this small house in Cherry Brook. And so she was approached by another friend who was already working um, in, in in the Halifax for a family she said, Oh Bernice, you should come and work for this family. They're looking for somebody. So some of the women would recruit other women to come in because they thought it was you know it was better than living home and not having as much, come and live with this family.
1: So you mentioned like the like the travel. We we hear a lot of stories about, you know, young like blacks uh, traveling by themselves or cr- traveling in groups and it's not the safest like conditions especially oh with goodness. like you, you know hitchhiking and things like that was there stories of people going missing because of like the travel
2: there like, would definitely be stories of people getting beaten up
0: uh, um, I've always heard of like rocks being thrown right names right. being yeah. called out just the verbal abuse the yeah. verbal oh, yeah. Ab- yeah. abuse
2: yeah. it's hard to say if people went missing mm-hmm. And even now, I mean, my oldest son, in terms of the one that that I have with my partner, because my eldest son is well-grown and is up north, but my my middle child, who's 22, um, has been carded. He has beautiful, long dreads. Again, these are children who have been raised in predominantly white schools. Majority of their friends that they hang with are white. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's been carded with his white friends. And, and he's only told me this after, because we, m- many black families have to have the talk, especially with their, their young black boys. When you leave the house, A, B, C, and D, turn on your phone. If the police approach you, this is what you need to do. And, and as black people, as black brothers and sisters, we know what we mean when we say we have to have the talk. Mm-hmm. right? Very other few people have to have the talk mm-hmm. with their children, and you pray the whole time they're out, hoping that they come back home. How many other people have to worry about is your children coming home after they leave to go out to play basketball, uh-huh. to go out to meet some friends, to go out to go to work, right? How many families have to wonder, is my child coming back home safe? I was moved by um, a, a Twitter by Dr. Gainer Creed Watson, who I know well. And it was shortly after the situation happened with our, our Halifax police mm-hmm. um, and his and his partner when they were stopped at gunpoint and oh, so oh, on and, and so forth. North
0: Preston, right? Right. Yeah.
2: And she put a, a, a Twitter, and she's a, a medical doctor. She's, she now teaches at Dow. She's a dean in, in medicine. And she put a Twitter about her, her son to the police, saying, this is what my son looks like. He may be working at night sometimes. He may be driving this car. He is not out to hurt anybody. Please make sure that my son arrives home safe.
0: Yeah. And
2: that's the reality of black mothers.
0: Uh, Larisse, you, you've obviously had that conversation mm-hmm. from your parents. I've had that, right? Um, well, luckily, so this is my father was a police officer. Yeah. He still had to have the conversation. So I had that conversation. And just to give you some context, my dad, I think it was around when I was six, mm-hmm. had that conversation with me, you know, to kind of talk about policing and how to conduct myself and you know I have a daughter now but while my wife was pregnant and my the whole entire time I was thinking about if I had a a son what am I gonna have this conversation with him now because I don't think it's got better no um so you know again back to the mental health around that stuff. Right. That stuff weighs on you after right. a while.
2: And so these women would talk about in the research the impact of racism. Uh-huh. Where some would talk about how they didn't want to live in some cases. They mm-hmm. didn't want to go to work. Some had suicidal thoughts. Yeah. Because it was so much as soon as they get to work. Some talked about the microaggressions and the oh. macroaggressions and how the microaggressions build up. Yeah. And how often black women get get labeled the angry black women. Mm-hmm. And and we and we walk with that and that's real right? When people think that about ourselves yep. or about us as, as black women. And so in researching about these women, it was absolutely powerful. And the other research that I do is our education system. Um, And the streaming of our our children into individual program planning Uh and that impact on them of not being able to go on to higher education if they choose. Um, It's very difficult for a student to go on to post-secondary if they've been placed on an individual program plan, an IPP. So I do some research around our our education system and how it's helping or hurting our black children. Uh
0: I'm just this I, I have said this before like some of these conversations we have right now I don't know it's it's very therapeutic for right. for us because you know we're living this still to we this day still right? yeah,
1: living this, we man. are. like it's it's so like eye-opening and so enriching but it's powerful at the same time because I mean now we know you know some of the challenges and you know we can build strategies to overcome them
2: <laughs> Right. right. Yeah. I, I, and I, I don't want to, to jump around, but there's a story that's coming to my head when you talked about mom and mom working in the South End as a domestic worker. And Christmas time, there's a couple of houses that can r- really beautifully decorate it down the South End. And everyone goes there like uh-huh. they all tour it. Right. So I remember one Christmas holiday saying to mom, oh, let's go look at the lights in the South End. Why did I do that? So we're driving down the South Bend. I'm just so excited to be showing mom all these beautiful houses with all these lights. And as you're driving, mom's like, I cleaned that house. I cleaned that house. I said, okay, our tour is over. (laughs) Let's go up to North Preston and look at the beautiful lights in North Preston. Because I know that you're not going to say, I cleaned that house and that house. You're actually going to enjoy the Christmas lights. So those were telling moments for me when mom would, things that I think is enjoyable, and beautiful and she would recall her memories yeah. of working in those homes.
1: Wow. And it's just it's not necessarily traumatic, no. but it's
2: for me like, it's wow. like, wow. Yeah. Like it's oh my eye-opening. goodness.
1: It is. You're like, right. It is. This is
2: where I work. Like yeah. I work in the South End. Dalhousie's in the South End. How many of these houses that I'm walking past have you been in?
1: Or have we been associated we been with, associated like from with, the community yeah. aspect, right? Right. Yeah.
2: Because yeah. I remember one time my car running out of gas and knocking on a door, and you could see people mouth, "There's a black girl at the door," and it's like, are they going to open it or not? <laughs> like, I felt safer in the north Jeez. end of Halifax yep. as a young person than I feel in the south end of Halifax.
1: So I think that leads us into like another like area that we really want to touch on with you, given your research.
2: Yes.
1: Uh and I mean that is is like given everything that, you know, we see today, like how important is the conversation about diversity and inclusion?
2: The conversation is very important. We as black people have been in Canada, in Nova Scotia for over 400 years. Mm -hmm. And even though we've been here for over 400 years, people still see us as visitors. And if we leave outside of Nova Scotia, and even sometimes in Nova Scotia, especially as more people come to Nova Scotia, we are often asked, where are you from? And our answer is Nova Scotia. Where's your parents from? Nova Scotia. Where's your grandparents (laughs) from? Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is where I am from. And then if you want to know historically where I'm from, I claim Sierra Leone, West Africa, Uh because in 1792, 15 ships sailed direct from Halifax Harbor to Sierra Leone. And that's where it gets awkward. Exactly. (laughs) They're like, oh, oh, I didn't didn't mean that. I didn't mean anything by that.
0: Well, you asked me like four (laughs) times where I'm
2: from. (laughs) So when we talk about the importance of diversity and inclusion, we're not asking for something that we don't deserve. Mm -hmm. And I went to a, a presentation by Angela Davis when she was here at Dow, Dr. Angela Davis, and she said... Why are we fighting to be included in something that people don't want us in? We shouldn't be asking to be included. We should be just taking it.
1: Mm-hmm. At least the problem, though. Or- so. <laughs>
2: exactly. Or at least have the option to. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. why we need to have more black-owned businesses. Yep. That's why we need to have more black schools. Mm-hmm. That's why we need to create.
1: But when you say black schools, it's not a segregated school. It's no. just Afrocentric. Afrocentric. L- learning.
2: Learning. Exactly. Well, we, our history is yep. taught. We, we, are, we matter. Yep. The same way we have French immersion, we should mm-hmm. have Afrocentric immersion, which is something mm-hmm. we're looking seriously at. We should have the options to have those types of education opportunities so that we get grounded in who we are as people of African descent. Absolutely. And so when it comes to diversity inclusion, and one of my most recent positions at Dow is I'm an assistant vice provost of equity inclusion, um, which started July 1st. And so that's to make sure that people are no longer doing harm to diverse groups and Uh, that they're recognizing the contributions and the importance of diversity in that. Mm -hmm. And when you're having conversations, it's making sure your conversations aren't having harm. And when they do, being in a position of power to say, hey, hey, that's not acceptable at this table. We need to talk about your language and what you're saying because that is powerful. Words can hurt, and Mm -hmm. words mean power. Mm -hmm. And so one of my primary jobs is to make sure everything that happens at at Dow has an EDI focus as much as possible. And so we've been very intentional in some of our hiring practices. We've been very intentional in some of the positions that have been created, Mm -hmm. We've been very intentional in where some of the support is going. At Dalhousie, we really recognize the difference for our indigenous people and more specifically our Mi'kmaq people. And we recognize the difference for people of African descent and more specifically African Nova Scotian. Mm -hmm. So we have been able to elevate at Dalhousie the African Nova Scotian experience. Um, Because the UN has declared African Nova Scotians as a distinct people, as a distinct population, given our history of having been here for over 400 years. So that's why I go back to diversity inclusion. I appreciate diversity inclusion, but we're not asking to be included. We're asking to have what is ours. And to be recognized, our contributions, this province, this country would not exist if it wasn't for African Nova Scotians, if it wasn't for people of African descent. Uh So we need to be careful of how we use this word included as opposed to recognized Uh and given due diligence. Uh When you go back to Martin Luther King, who says we've been written a blank check of insufficient funds, every job that we have, if we are not there, that's insufficient. Yes, so again, we're not asking for something that we don't deserve. And it goes back to the where the people talk about reparations. How much money did you make off of the back mm-hmm. of slavery, off the back of servitude, mm-hmm. off of the back of low income, mm-hmm. off of the back of our people Your of African descent, Your my mother, mother? As an example. As an example. <laughs> how much money has been made by what? this country in this province at the sacrifice? Of black people,
1: it's like the reclamation of the land. If I was to, five thousand to
0: acres to what it is today,
1: if, if it, right? And, and if
0: I was to guess in terms of money, well, a lot. <laughs> Two things and one thing you you touched on here, and I've heard this like the four designated groups in Canada, right? right? There's that category of visible minorities.
2: Oh, I don't use that word.
0: And so this is a thing. What I found. African Nova Scotians get grouped into that visible minority Absolutely. categorization. Oh, my heavens. And so you know when you start talking about diversity oh we're diverse, mm-hmm. we're diverse and I'm sitting back and I'm saying no you're not because my experience is different than a lot of these Absolutely. other visible minorities. Right. There's um, that we don't have we have more barriers
2: exactly our, is, our, our experience of racism is, a, is yep. historical is long impacting and wow. that's not impacting. taking away from other people of african descent where no. i'm not taking away from the people exactly. of the continent i'm not taking away from people from the caribbean but our education system as soon as we stepped into school at, at age 4 or 5 we're experiencing racism even before we get to school.
1: Even before. Well, even, even before we
2: get there. Even so before. our whole life has been fighting against this thing called racism, and you continue to fight it.
0: Well, I shared this story with Larice. like, I think it was my grade one teacher. She said, I don't know if Sean's going to make it.
1: <laughs> I had that experience in grade two.
2: Oh. It, it, it happens throughout. When yep. my when my child, who's 18, started school in primary, I remember him putting him in, in African clothing because I was proud. I wanted him to celebrate who he was. Oh, please. And I remember a white child come up to him saying, oh, David, get on a dress. Oh, boy. As instantly as that happened, I was in that school and hot as could be doing a whole discussion, fashion show discussion. And because of my children going through the public school system, I have put myself on every school advisory committee since my children have been in school so that I can make sure that my, my kids and other black children are protected. And people uh, know that sitting around this table is a mama well, of that's all, a continuation, all the black children in the school that's, that's system.
1: That's a continuation of what your life's work, right? right. That's a continuation of your I'll life's just, work.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm lost for words at this point. Yeah, and so
2: and I know I get passionate because Black people make me passionate. Being Black is is a passion. Being a person of African Nova Scotian descent, I live it. I love it. I would not ask for anything else. But going to your point of visible minorities, I'm thankful that I'm older and wiser. Yeah. So whenever anybody uses the term visible minorities, I said there's nothing min- minor about me, and. And if you put all the so-called visible minorities together, we're actually the majority. So the use of visible minorities is to meant to denote power, and so I will not allow you to use that word in my presence, and I tell them that. Oh because God. when you use mi- minority and majority, you're denoting power. When you uh-huh. think about South Africa, uh-huh. you're using power to define uh-huh. who I am. Yeah. So yeah. I will not allow you to use visible minorities because there's nothing minor about me. If you want to use racially visible, you can, but you cannot use minority. Because I am not a minor, and I am not a minority.
0: I'm not using that word
2: again. So, I, and I sit that on... That makes
0: so much sense. Me
2: <laughs> and I sit on the SHIRK committee, and at, just uh. at a recent meeting, and SHIRK is the social science health research, and we're sitting there as, as part of the anti-racism, because not a lot of funding has been going to the black community. And I have said to SHIRK, don't wait until Justin Trudeau stops using the word visible minority. You make the intent right now to stop using it. Mm-hmm. Oh, JT. And mm-hmm. I said, and if we start doing that, then perhaps the federal government will come on side and stop using it.
1: So, given the current size of Beachville, mm-hmm. do you feel that Beachville is like at risk of losing its identity?
2: I would say that Beachville is standing strong. We have a lot of strong activists mm-hmm. within the community. There's a strong Beachville um, Heritage Society group. They were able to successfully advocate for the Lakeside Industrial Park name to be changed um, to Beachville Industrial Park. Um, When Lakeside Industrial Park became called Lakeside Industrial Park, and a lot of our history is oral history, Mm -hmm. we were told that the children that were leaving from the school were asked to sign a petition using Mr. or Mrs. as if to say that we supported Lakeside being called Lakeside Industrial Park.
0: No, please don't. And so
2: when it got changed in the late... In 2017, it was around 2017 that we were successful through this Beachville community, heritage community, to advocate to have the name changed and the proper sign put in Beachville. Mm-hmm. And so when you hear those stories growing up as a kid, I mean, Lakeside Industrial Park, I had to walk past Lakeside Industrial Park to go to Beachville Baptist Church. Um, coming from Beachville Monroe Subdivision and going to Beachville Baptist Church, how the blazes can there be a Lakeside Industrial Park in the middle of Beachville? And so that sign was not changed until I, I'm an adult in my 50s. And I am so proud of that historical society, the Beachville Historical Society, who advocated for that. So they continue to fight for the land that is Beachville. Mm-hmm. We recently had some excavation come in about the fact that there's been settlements. There's been proof of settlements, and we're thankful for the Office of African Nova Scotian Affairs, of settlements that have been there since the 18th century. And so once you become acknowledged uh-huh. as a historical site, all buildings, and all development is supposed to cease and desist. Because now you have to get the, the proper land and you have to get the acknowledgement of being that historical site. Mm-hmm. So all I can say is that there are still many descendants of Beechville that live in Beechville. Mm-hmm. And I am thankful that they continue to fight for Beechville to remain who they are.
1: Absolutely. But it's a
2: challenge. Mm-hmm. And it's a challenge in all our black communities. So we can only hope and pray and I, and I expressed to them that I want to join that fight. Um, I haven't been actively involved in that fight. Mm-hmm. I've allowed myself to be disconnected just because of where I live and my job, but they need more people who are from the community of Peachville to join that fight with them. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't continue to fight for our land, if we don't continue to educate our population that exists or people of African descent, we have that risk of disappearing.
1: Wow. I-, I wish you guys can see our faces right now.
0: <laughs> this is, again, we couldn't ask for anything more. It's been truly a rewarding experience. So we would like to thank Dr. Barbara Hamilton Hinch again for being on the Loyalist Connections podcast, established 1783.
2: It's nice having a black refugee with a black <laughs> Yes. <laughs>
1: thank you so much thank you for listening to the loyalist connections podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some new insights
0: this episode was produced by your host larise gabriel downey and myself sean smith of the loyalist connections creative group
1: we want to send out a special thanks uh, to our community partners the black cultural center and the black loyalist heritage center and society for their continued support and shout out our alma mater saint mary's university especially the St. Mary's University-Goresbrook Research Institute partnership for making resources available to us to complete this project. We encourage you to join us as we continue to host these meaningful conversations and uncover information on our communities and other important aspects of our history.
0: In the meantime, don't forget to listen, like, follow, and share the Loyalist Connection podcast on all your favorite platforms. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connection Podcast for updates and behind-the-scenes content.
1: Also, for exclusive content, including access to unedited episodes, join the Loyalist Connections community on Patreon. And until the next episode, stay connected. connected.